Yeah, well, and also, I've been a little bit weary uh, or leery. Or weary or leery. Either of those words. One of those words. Weary, words. leery, leery. Hello. Welcome to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Christine. Well, welcome back. This is the Topics of Interest one, not not one where we just bike shed about bike shedding this time. So today, as we explained in the bike shed episode, we're going to do kind of a collection of lightning talks. Ideas that we have ideas about, but aren't necessarily full episode topics on their own. Yeah. So I think my first one this week is free and open source software game that's made for the original Nintendo Entertainment System um, called Nova the Squirrel by a developer named Nova Squirrel. And it's pretty amazing. So it's a real game that, I mean, I played it on an emulator, right? But it's a real game that's been made recently. It's under... I don't remember if it's GPL v2 or later, or if it's just GPL v3 or, or which, but it's under the GPL. Um, oh, okay, Morgan just checked. It is under the GPL version 3.0. And it is a game where you play the titular green squirrel who's running around, can stun creatures with these little spiky ball things that she throws out of her tail, and then also can collect various types of power-ups so it's kind of a Mario type game, but also has some elements from Kirby where you can steal uh, the powers of the various creatures. And it is really impressive, like really impressive because it's not easy to do smooth side scrolling games. And this includes just a lot of mechanics that are some of the nicer mechanics from some of the better later generation Nintendo Entertainment System games. But it's being developed today and is actually done in 6502 assembly, like old school mm-hmm. NES games were. And it's a single developer game. Yeah. And it's just really incredible. It's I'd like to try playing it on a hardware-based NES, but so far I have managed to play it on a couple of emulators, and it worked great. And I don't know, I think that there's something pretty cool about there's been these idea of fantasy consoles which is where you kind of have imaginary consoles that are kind of retroactively pulling into the idea um, of old school gaming, like Pico 8 and Tick 80, which -hmm. is a free software version. But here it's just actually saying, oh, the original Nintendo is your fantasy console. And since we Mm -hmm. all have a bunch of good open source NES emulators, that ends up being sufficient. Well, and it hits those uh, nostalgia points in your head but also has new content that you didn't necessarily play when you were eight yeah so you get the combination of nostalgia plus you know novelty yeah so just a plus would highly recommend she's also working on a new super nintendo game which is going to be the sequel um so i look forward to whenever that comes out but the game is surprisingly big the first one and has a bunch of different little minor modes, so I recommend everybody check it out. Yeah. So what's yours? Um, so I've been doing 
some more sewing since I finished my dissertation and have slowly been pulling myself out of the burnout hole that I was in. And because of that, I've been thinking a lot lately about the idea of sewing patterns and maybe having, instead of patterns, more like guidelines. So I make my own purses and I've been making my own purses for over a decade at this point because I have a bad back. So I want a purse that is small and doesn't put that much strain on my back, but I want it to be exactly the size that I need it to be to fit all of the things that I need and have absolutely no more space because I will fill all of the extra space. So I've been developing the pattern that I use and changing it bit by bit over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And some people recently have suggested that I make a pattern and share that. But kind of the benefit of this purse to me is that it fits all of the things that I need, exactly the size that I need them. And I would love to share that with other people, but other people probably need different things to fit in their purses that are different sizes. So what you're talking about, it's kind of a pattern of patterns instead of being like a very specific exact pattern that you implement. I've been a little bit afraid of doing direct patterns because I am not the most precise sewer. So I don't necessarily like measure everything. I, or at least not with like a ruler. Sometimes I measure things by holding my phone up to it and being like, well, that's the size I need for my phone pouch. You do sewing the way that I do cooking. Exactly. Uh, I don't personally follow sewing patterns that well myself because of the dyslexia and dyscalculia. So I don't know that I would be very good at making sewing patterns that people could follow precisely. So I've been thinking more about doing just kind of guidelines. And another sewing project or sewing projects I've been doing is, I think I've mentioned before that I've developed a skin allergy to synthetic fabrics and finding 100% cotton or bamboo or modal or linen. Like there's a fairly constricted range of fibers that I can use and finding clothes that don't give me a reaction has been a bit tough. But one of the things that you can find are the really cheap six packs of Hanes cotton shirts for $10, which it turns out not all of them are 100% cotton, but in a pack of six, like four of them were 100% cotton and it was still only $10. So that's cheaper than most of the cotton shirts I've been able to find. But they're just simple t-shirts So I've been modifying those as well. So you want to describe your modifications? Well, I've played around with a couple of different things. The one that I'm currently wearing, I just cut off the neck and I made it a larger V-neck. Kind of more of what's expected as a femme neckline than a kind of a quote unquote unisex. Yeah, and then I finished it off with... Just one of the embroidery stitches that's available on my sewing machine. So it makes it a little bit more femme without being too much labor. And then I've tried some slightly more... Exaggerated. Yeah, some slightly more exaggerated or fancy things. Specifically like 
combining two shirts worth of fabric so that I can have more kind of like pleats or so, folds. So are you talking more than about making something like a tutorial as opposed to... Yes. And it would be like a two-taste tutorial, right? So people can take their own measurements or not. They can just hold it up to their bodies and figure out what works to them. I mean, I identify with that. I, I mean, this one's your point, but I hope you don't mind me jumping in. But I, yeah. I, when it comes to cooking, since I do kind of a similar thing to what you do with sewing with cooking, my favorite cookbook was Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything Vegetarian First Edition. And I have both the first edition and the second edition versions. And they're both good, mm-hmm. but they're kind of different. So in the second one, they decided the first one was really like a, here's how recipes work. Like, we will give you a recipe and then give you, like, 50 different ways to change them and lay out the ideas behind things. And in the second book, they're like, you know what? That was a little bit overwhelming. We're going to have a lot more pretty pictures in this one. We're going to focus more on complete recipes. We'll still have some of that, but not quite as much as we did in the first edition. And I do not like that as much because I loved it. That's why I liked the first edition. It hits your, I like reading manuals. Exactly. Well, so the reason I like reading manuals is I like understanding and picking up techniques, mm-hmm. right? And and that's that's the idea there. So, yeah. so I mean, so is that the, I mean, that's the value of tutorials, right? Is yeah. they're technique builders. Yeah. And for sewing, since I've been, for the purse, for example, since I've been basically making the same purse over and over and over again for the past you know, 10 to 15 years. I don't actually remember when I started. I know a lot of things that you shouldn't do because I have done them and they have been really annoying. Mm -hmm. And every time I make it, the pattern or lack of pattern, I don't actually write it down most of the time. I just remember like, oh yeah, that didn't work out. Yeah. So putting it down in a tutorial of basically a here's how I've messed up in the past and here's what's worked for me, but please do it to your own specifications. So it kind of hits the index card recipe where it's like a pinch of salt and it's like, what's a pinch? Yeah. Right? Like, you know. Like what? Why did my grandma never use measuring cups? That's because she did the recipe over and over again and she knew how to kind of yeah. run with it, right? And yeah, so I, I think I think that actually that's an interesting point that tutorials are technique builders Mm -hmm. right that's kind of the difference there yeah so i i think that's interesting there was also some conversations that happened in the fossil crafts Crafts IRC channel starting almost exactly a year ago we we looked it up this morning and on august 3rd of 2020 there we had a conversation in in that channel where we were kind of like workshopping some ideas on what we could call basically libre or open or free culture sewing patterns. And Cat Walsh or Mind Spillage came up with the best option in there, which was just free software as w- three different words. W-E-A-R. Oh, <laughs> it's such a good pun. It's maybe a bad pun. She did say, I'll see myself out, but I love that pun. Yeah. That is a great pun. Thank you, Kat, for yes. free software. And also thank you to Valhalla for mentioning it again in the channel this week and reminding me right at the point when I was about to start putting together these tutorials that now I have a word I can put on them. Well, for... and this is not on the list, but something else that came up in the Foss and Crafts channel this week, and I think is what prompted this, is there was some sort of thread about, like, I think Victorian, like, tie-on pockets yes 
and um, Valhalla followed up with, you know, and here's this technique from this book, and here's also this one, and linked to this blog post, and I was reading it, I'm like, that's a pretty cool blog post, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is your blog, <laughs> and yeah, Val- we're going to link to that in the blog, in the show notes, but Valhalla yeah. has a really cool blog post for tie-on pockets. Your shirt doesn't have pockets? Yeah. Your, your, your skirt, your dress doesn't have pockets? No problem. You just tie on the pockets. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Also, Chris's response was kind of amusing because Valhalla started by before sharing the link saying, these are the pockets I'm currently wearing. And Chris was like, wait, you meant the ones you're actually wearing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so maybe expect some uh, free software patterns or guidelines from me. In the future. In the future. And thank you, Alana, for your existing free software patterns. Yeah, and there were other people in the channel that were talking about their own existing free software patterns as well. Yeah, maybe there needs to be like the free software wiki or something like that. Yeah, where people can just link to their blog posts. Somebody needs to make this. Somebody needs to run the free software wiki. We do not have the time, but but I bet you would contribute. Yeah, I would definitely contribute. Okay, cool. The next one is on RPG idea generator slash prompts. And here by RPG, we mean like the role-playing games, like the Foss and Crafts Theater episodes we we did back in the day. So so what are these? What are the idea generator slash prompts? So there's a lot of tools out there that you can use for these. Some of them are literally just prompts where someone says, wouldn't it be cool if this existed? And then someone with has a creative spark and is like, ooh, I can make that happen. One of them that we really like is uh, Rory's Story Cubes, which are dice with just kind of like basic pictograms on there that show basically very simple concepts. So if you roll five of them, then you can come up with a sentence of ideas. Yeah, like a story. And I think we talked about this in the narrative role play, uh, like story generation with dice. But one of the reasons I was excited for us to talk about this is I feel like this is an idea that can apply to many more things in life than just tabletop role-playing games. And I think should. so, Like, like external pockets. Like external pockets. You see people do this sometimes, right? Like, so every now and then, um, way back in the day, I did a couple of contributions to the Blender forums had a weekly contest thread. And there would be a prompt that somebody would give that was just a few words. And then people would make stuff related to that. And there was kind of an informal contest where people voted and somebody quote unquote won and won nothing, right? Like mm-hmm. they just won like, you know, you're the person who wins this week and their prizes, they get to choose a topic yep. for next week. And in fandom and fan fiction, prompts are a very standard thing. So someone on their Tumblr will say, I want stories for this fandom that follow this format. And then 10 people will write stories based off of that prompt. I feel like we don't see enough of this in programming. Well, I mean, isn't that what, like, game jams are? That's right. Game jams are absolutely this. So game jams do that. Yeah, there's nothing like that for command line utilities, I guess. (laughs) I guess if you get too practical, maybe this stuff falls apart. Like, does there have to be an aesthetic component of this to give people enough wiggle room? Or is there... I think there has to be a creative component to it. I'm pausing thinking about whether or not practical things are not creative enough. Like that is well, a tricky thing. Exterior pockets. That yeah, is a true. very practical thing. But if you're making it yourself, you can get creative about it. That's true. But that wasn't a prompt, right? Was it? It was just somebody posted it on the internet. And I mean, I guess it prompted conversation. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I don't know. I, I would like to see more about where things like this can happen. And maybe a fun thing to do would be to do like a mini game jam where we actually just rolled some Rory's story cubes. And then we're like, that's our game jam for the weekend is yeah. we're just making a game that's related to this or something like that. Yeah. Maybe we could even do it like as part of a hack and crafts. No, maybe something like that. Okay, cool. You had this next one. What You want to explain what it is? When we had our episode with Steel a couple weeks ago talking about, well, actually, by the time this airs, it's going to be more than a couple weeks ago, uh, talking about press books, we did our intro and Steel was like, oh, wow, you guys actually just do that live. Mm-hmm. And yes, we do that intro live every time. And that kind of got us thinking about our workflow for guest episodes and thought we might share that. So right now we use a Mumble server that I host. Mm -hmm. And what we do is Morgan and I sit at our computers independently when we do these episodes. With individual headsets. And we both record. um, So we mix it up a little bit. What the minimum thing we always do is... In Mumble, there is a record feature, and the record feature has multi-track, right? So Morgan and I will both select multi-track, and so will the guest. And that way, Morgan and I can synchronize our audio, where, you know, mm-hmm. we, we basically use... So it'll spit out, like, you know, the MLM web, the C-Weber, the, you know, Steel, or whatever the, the guest name is, and it'll set, spit it out as separate audio tracks. And then you sometimes have to futz with them to get the timing to line up, especially because it drifts when there's network stuff. But um, then everyone has a local recording. So that's right. if Chris and I were recording just on our end and there was a network lag where we lost the guest's audio for a little bit, then that would be okay because the guest is also local recording. That's right. So we can kind of restore it, basically. And, yeah. And- and this podcast has entirely existed within a pandemic, so we haven't had any guest episodes where we're all sitting in the same room. Is that true? Yeah, I guess we haven't. Yeah, even with even with our local, local friends. friends, we've done them all where we've recorded them. Well, we did have the bit of the, oh, the gardening, gardening one where we were sitting <laughs> in the garden. recording the ducks. And I was, yeah, I was, I was like stalking ducks. Duck around. stalking. Yeah, that's right. Duck stalking serious business. Yeah, but not in the hunting sense. No, no, <laughs> no. Oh, no. It's like following them around because they're being cute and muttering. Yeah, they are muttering. And then alongside the mumble, we typically use an ether pad. So before we start recording, we have our guests get on mumble and we share an ether pad and we collectively take notes and come up with an outline of what we want to actually say in the episode and then sometimes we write notes to each other in the outline while we're recording things like chris saying oh i want to follow up here or (laughs) yeah something like that and then we can sometimes use that to generate the show notes for yeah for the episode i think we did have one failure one time where we had a network problem at our house so both of us lost connection to the etherpad but our guest still had it and was able to just like paste it in irc or something like Um, that and well you can reconnect to an etherpad the problem is is that we both forgot the link we didn't write it down no because it was like we still had the tab open and we tried refreshing it and it didn't work okay Maybe. I don't remember. (laughs) Feasible. Okay, so. 
Oh, well, do we want to say what, what the editing is like then? So, oh, yeah, and then editing. So we end up basically, if we have one guest and the two of us, we basically end up with nine recorded tracks because Chris's local recording will record three, but we three usually tracks. Don't, and we only usually have the guests send us their track. We don't have them send true. all the tracks. So we can just align that. But it's as we said, there's sometimes network delays and deviation where you have to actually cut it up and align things. Mm-hmm. And we use Audacity. Not going to get into the current drama around Audacity, but... Well, I'm going to say this. Like, despite the drama stuff around Audacity, it's still historically good developed software. You know, maybe there are issues. The current discussions about what's happening with the project now doesn't change the fact that it's free software and we have versions of it that are useful, you know, in this one. And that predate the current... But I've been interested in actually exploring Ardour anyway. I've been procrastinating on doing it, but I would really like to actually get into that for exploring that whole other system. It's just Audacity is really easy to pick up and use. It's, mm-hmm. I think, the main thing. And it has a bunch of really nice plugins. Yeah. So, and historically, it's still good software. And no matter what you think about whatever is currently happening, you can still run the older revisions. Yeah. So. Uh, and I guess we'll see what ha- shakes out with the community stuff. Um, well, we said we were not going to get into that, and then I did. So let's keep going. Guile. Oh. the compiler tower. Yes. So I wanted to talk about this because I think it's interesting. So the idea of a compiler tower is not exclusive to Guile. But I still think it's interesting that Guile exposes it first class in a way that you can mess with. Um, the idea here is that oftentimes in computer programming languages, things get compiled between different uh, phases, right? So the first phase is the version you type in, you know, to the the program. And then the next phase might be some sort of like intermediate, like um, abstraction where it is optimizing. And then the final version might actually be whatever what's run on the hardware or whatever. But people can also compile to, you know, there's also things like transpilers, right? Like where you cross-compile from one language to another, right? And stuff like that. So Guile's compiler tower is basically each one of these phases, you can think of it as being like a bunch of stacked layers in a layer cake. And, um, you know, or a bunch of floors in a building. And each one of them has, you know, you've got the, the floor that you start on, right? And then that one can say here's how i compile to this other one and so basically you have a transformer that sits in between that says okay if you have this layer i can translate to that to this layer so for example guile has a very basic and incomplete version where you can write a certain subset of javascript and actually run it in guile's virtual machine but also there is a branch unfortunately it's bid rotting which can compile to to JavaScript. So you could even take JavaScript in, compile it, and spit JavaScript out. And similarly, there is a version for where, you know, you can, a branch of Guile that supports Emacs Lisp. So you could even, in theory, take Emacs Lisp, you know, compile it and spit out JavaScript or whatever. And I think that that's really cool. I think it's really cool how it exposes it. It was really helpful for me for learning about how compilers work. So this is a very deeply nerdy topic. But I think what's also nice about it is it has a nice visual metaphor, right? You can think of each one of these floors and then there's a stairwell in between it that basically brings you from one floor to the other floor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So what's next? So both of us, 
actually have gotten into or back into as the case may be jewelry and necklace making and that's largely a task that we've been doing during hack and craft sessions that's right and i'm wearing one of them right now that morgan put together do you want to describe it sure so in our last hack and craft i was making necklaces and we had recently bought a bunch of beads and it was chris's first time buying beads and I very quickly realized that all of the beads that I bought were like black and red and all of the beads that Chris bought were like purple and some clear ones. And then we had this kind of like mixed bag of wooden beads that were of multiple different colors. So after I made a black and red necklace and matching bracelet, I'm like, huh, we don't have any necklaces to match any clothes that are in the cool colors. So I've used some of the wooden beads that were blue and green and some fake ivory, I think they're plastic, beads that are kind of an ivory color to space them out and some bronze beads. We would not be buying ivory. What are you kidding me? We absolutely would not be buying ivory, but I think they're supposed to look like they're ivory is the point that I was making. And then a kind of fancy Victorian-looking key charm. Which is also just plastic, but colored to look kind of like a piece of metal key. Yep. um, With just like metal paint. Anyway, I've found doing jewelry making to be really kind of thrilling and liberating because it's pretty easy to do. Like Mm -hmm. you're kind of making a pattern and going with it. You're using pre-built components Um, You've got, you know, just kind of the set of materials and you get a nice tangible output that you have a way in a very easy way that you can use every day to kind of mix up your appearance. Yeah. So this would be more like open hardware in the W-E-A-R. W-E-A-R. In that it's customizable. And if we were to release patterns or tutorials for them... You could do that. Do you need to make tutorials for making no, necklaces? No, I don't think... Well, at least not for the type that we've made so far. And there are definitely more complicated ways of making jewelry, and we're kind of doing some very basic rudimentary stuff. Kat Walsh, speaking of, posted some very pretty necklaces that she made at the Hack and Craft um, afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, we can link to them in Which the Which was notes. a much more complex a much, pattern than what we were doing. Much nicer than <laughs> what we were doing and very, really cool. But I mean, yeah, so for, I guess, just strings some beads together, you don't need to, but maybe for something more complicated. Uh, yeah, if you made it too open of hardware, then the beads might just spill everywhere. Yeah, you, you need a closed end there. But one of the reasons that it's nice, I think, and you can take it from here because I think this probably effect has affected you more with the transition is that you can make them to your own specifications because you've had a little bit of difficulty finding some jewelry. Is that correct? Uh, well, I think it's more that I just really, I've been having trouble finding jewelry I like. Yeah. So it's, it's been nice to be able to, I think jewelry is not as difficult as clothing is. Um, yeah. But you have had, a, have had trouble finding necklaces that, look like they're the right length on you right i don't know i don't think i've spent that much time maybe yes sure yes enough (laughs) but yeah it's the whole idea that you can do what you want yeah and and make something that works with the type of things you know you have Mm -hmm. cool we mentioned that christine just recently got into jewelry making and that wasn't something that they had done 
previously to the last few weeks. But I had made jewelry before, and probably the most notable times that I've made jewelry is because I had a friend who was very into jewelry making, Laura, and she helped me make jewelry as gifts for my bridesmaids for my wedding, and I have a bunch of jewelry that she made me as gifts. And one of the things that prompted me to go out and buy some jewelry making supplies is actually because one of the necklaces that she made me, the clasp broke, which is kind of critical because she died in December of 2019. Mm -hmm. So... Having that as a memento was important, and also kind of picking up this craft that I hadn't done in years, but my primary experiences with it were... With your friend. Yeah. There's something valuable about that, as in terms of the way that much of life is about experiences, as in terms of the connections we have between people can include... The things we do together and the, you know, the things we make together sometimes too and give each other. And I mean, the reason why oftentimes people love handmade gifts so much, even if you might be able to purchase a superior quality non-handmade version, is because you know the time and energy that went into it, right? Yeah. And that someone else made it custom for you, too. Yeah. There is a... um I never got into mixtapes because I was just not in that era of like the cassette tape type thing. But my friends and I did give each other CDs of music that we would hand each other. But I had friends who even when they had CD burners and those were broadly available. And nowadays you might just give each other, you know, a set of, you know, files. Yeah. But the, um, but they were, they, they, they said, you know, there's something really valuable to to me about the mixtapes i have for my friends the way that because it it took so much extra time you know to sit there and record and do the things it was a much more manual process and therefore the tapes that they had were kind of meaningful to them and sometimes they would be kind of just smashed together as in terms of like the way that there were awkward transitions and stuff like that and people kind of can gain like affection for that yeah and there's a song by Jim's Big Ego, probably my favorite band, that I, I really like called Mixtape, that I think if we can find a link to it, we'll put it in the show notes that I think kind of talks about this. But I didn't have that experience, but I I feel like I connect with that experience. The idea of there something being valuable about the non-automation component, which is kind of... There's a part of me also that's like, it can be dangerous to attach too much sentimentality to that. It's in terms of like, then you might end up prioritizing things in your life where you never get anything done. Yeah. But from a human connection perspective, I think it is important. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's next? In the process of making my purse, I've also kind of been doing more and more myself at as the process of making these purses has gone on, and the last two iterations, so the current one that I just made and then the previous one, I had made the strap using tablet weaving, and I had used embroidery floss 
in weaving the strap so that I could then embroider the purse with the same embroidery floss and that it would kind of tie together the look. And so one of the things about if I were to make tutorials is that you it's customizable to what you can and want to do and you obviously don't need to tablet weave the strap or embroider the front or, or things like that, but you can. And so I was thinking about tablet weaving specifically in the idea of kind of patterns and basically weaving patterns as kind of a programming language, partially because the pattern that I modified for this particular purse strap ended up looking just like a series of angle brackets. So it ended up looking kind of like an abstracted HTML. Mm -hmm. So there's the, the abstracted HTML, but the instructions themselves kind of sometimes end up feeling like um, well, you're assembling something, and sometimes mm -hmm. they really do feel like assembly language. Yeah. I remember there was something similar to that when, uh, back when our friend Ava was really into uh, 3D printing, mm -hmm. and she was showing me the, what's called G-codes that get sent to the printer, which are basically these movement instructions. And they're basically movement assembly language, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, move this thing this way and then move it that way and, and so on and the other thing. And there's that game Robo Rally. That's also kind of like assembly language where, you know, you're you're actually using cards to move your robots around. But I don't know. I think that there is sometimes when I see those types of things, I am I am interested in the commonality of ins of mm -hmm. programmery language type things blending into other yeah. areas. Well, and an interesting thing about this pattern I used, too, is that it's a it's a three color pattern just because I had two colors that I wanted to use for my embroidery. And then I wanted a black border on it. And as far as three color patterns for tablet weaving goes, this is a really great beginner pattern and I can share that as well. It's one that I modified off of an existing four color um, pattern. But it's really great because since it ends up in this basically pattern of angle brackets, the way that you change the shed of your loom with tablet weaving is you just turn the cards and they've got a hole with a different thread on each four corner. So when you lift one up, then it separates one of those four from the other three. And so you can turn the card forwards or backwards in various things. But in this one, you just keep turning it forwards eight times and then you turn it backwards eight times. And when, you, when you're supposed to turn it forward, then your angle brackets are pointing in like a forward arrow. And when you're supposed to turn it backwards, then your angle brackets are pointing backwards. So it's really easy to not mess up the pattern because if you mess up the pattern, then you get a bug in your code yeah. and it's visible. It's also funny because you have left a number of these little cards sitting around on the <laughs> ground and they kind of like make me think of like little tiny square punch cards. Yeah. For like, um, which of course punch cards have their history in Jacquard's loom for mm -hmm. the automated loom and stuff. Actually, I don't, I don't think those were the punch cards are particularly too rate related to the cards for the tablet weaving, but it, it just does aesthetically remind me of it when I see them cast about. Yeah. Also, it's going into archaeology thinking now. You find tablets 
typically made out of ivory or stone or something like that archaeologically and you almost never find like a usable set of them you'll find like one or two scattered around and you're like why would there be only one or two and then as chris pointed out (laughs) like there were just four of them sitting in chris's office that i had forgotten in there because they were the leftovers from the set that i didn't use when i was dressing my loom and it's kind of easier to just misplace little bits of things when you're weaving, I guess, than you would normally think. Yep. Okay, so last one is written on here as Garden Anger, Yarden Success. So I think you're the one who has been doing the most work this year and thus has experienced the most anger. So why don't you get into that? What, a, what does that mean? We've had some issues with small animals. We haven't seen them being problematic, but... So we might know who one of them is. We saw him. We saw, yeah, we saw, we saw one. It's probably a groundhog or something like that. It was, it was bigger than like a vole or something like that. We've also been very low on time this year, but you have also been putting in more time in terms of watering mm-hmm. and so on. But like our garden... Yes, I built guard, raised garden beds You built year. raised garden beds. I've especially done a bad job this year. The side yard is full of weeds and it's my fault that's my job and i'm not doing it because i've been very busy yep uh yep and but my raised garden beds were doing great they were and they should have been raised uh you know maybe beyond yeah and and the thing is i've i've tried starting cabbage three times this year i did seed starts of green cabbage And they all looked great for like a week or two and then they suddenly all died and I don't know why. And then I tried doing seed starts of red cabbage and it was like the same thing. They all looked great for like a week or two and then they all died as they were still little seed starts. And then when I built the raised garden bed, I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to plant these in the bed and we'll see. So I planted some red cabbage outside And they were looking great and they got much bigger than the seed starts did. And they were all about four or five inches tall and all of them were surviving. And I was at the point where I'm like, well, I'm going to need to start thinning them out so that they have room to grow. And then the next day I went outside and some jerk of a small animal had chomped through and decimated my cabbage. And there were like a couple that still had some scraggly leaves on them, but otherwise it was just like bare stalks of all of my cabbage and some of them have bounced back and i was hopeful and then a couple days ago yeah maybe the same jerk little rodent or maybe a different jerk little rodent had gone through we gotta get those cucumbers before they get taken too that's true we've got some cucumbers that are doing good and then also the tree that's the big one that's the one that i was gonna say we had a lilac tree taken out and we bought a plum tree to put in its place and had it was plums on it when we and bought it, it already little had ones. little plums growing on it and we specifically bought that one because we're like well this tree is more established than the other trees available at the garden center so it'll probably prevent erosion from the place that we just had a tree pulled out because it was on a hill it's been doing great there were like 20 little plums on it and it the tree's still alive it's still doing great 
but somehow, just one by one, all of the plums disappeared. Not not one by one. It was all in one night, right? No, it? it was slowly. Oh, really? Well, I hadn't been outside in a while. That's... Yeah, you just weren't watering the plants. I thought you said I thought you said that it was all in one night, and that's why I was amazed that it was like twenty plums in one night just disappeared. No, it was like five plums in one night disappeared. Oh, okay. But none of them had gone ripe yet; they were all still yellow. Oh, here I was thinking that something managed to make off with like twenty plums. No, they've 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 kind of slowly been. Ah, I might have. Off, I I might have stolen some of those plums from the tree before they all got stolen in green form and see if they managed to still ripe. But next year, maybe we'll throw some netting over it or something. Yeah, we've got netting. We got netting, and what do we do? We just left in the back of our. Yeah, uh, I asked if you would help me put up netting. Okay, yeah, I've been very busy, but I I know. Uh, Morgan finished Morgan's dissertation, and then I've been completely heads down on other stuff which we will talk about in the future the so that's the garden anger so i'm probably probably birds i'm guessing for the plums and then there's gonna be some big birds so i know and like i thought that maybe just the tree wasn't doing so great and it was just dropping the fruit prematurely but then there would be fruit on the ground and there's not yeah i think maybe squirrels that's it can't be that groundhog it would it would crush the tree yeah the groundhog wouldn't be able to to climb the tree but a squirrel probably could anyway not so the garden hasn't been as good this year but the yarden yeah yarden success garden anger yarden success so what is what is the yarden well chris and i have a goal for our yard um which is that we do not like the american conception of yards we don't like just grass taking up a bunch of space so we would like to replace as much as possible as much grass as we can with just edible weeds we have been getting success with various parts of the yard getting taken over by weeds we like yeah so um my my new favorite green is wood sorrel Wood sorrel, so great. good. Don't eat it every day because you know it. It's the same problem as fresh spinach. By yeah. the way, if you don't know this, don't eat fresh spinach every day. Cooked spinach is better for you. It can like screw with your like your kidneys or your liver or something. I, yeah, I think it's like some there's some metals in there. Yeah, I don't remember exactly, but you think that like healthy like spin fresh spinach is a healthier option as compared to lettuce? Not necessarily, but yeah. So like it's delicious. You want to just gotta eat it in moderation, but. So good. It t- it's so delicious. Yeah, wood sorrel, it tastes like lemon. And it has these tiny things that people call ground cucumbers, which are like these little bitty... Seed pods. Seed pods that like are like fresh and delicious tasting. But we also found out about broad plantain, which I didn't know that there was a green plant that's called plantain that's not have anything to do with the banana-like fruit thing. And that stuff is everywhere and super edible and super delicious. It looks kind of like spinach. It kind of cooks up like cabbage, cabbage, but it has like a mushroomy aftertaste. It's great. And also the stalks that appear out of that are like the psyllium husk or whatever, however you pronounce that, fiber. Basically just fiber. Yeah, they're just fiber. And uh, let's see, what else have we got? So we started propagating some mint, chocolate mint specifically to start taking over. Yeah, which is really good. We we've also got the pineapple mint, the pineapple mint, and the We're pineapple camel. Trying to keep it so that this stuff is not like is within the center area, so it's not spreading into other people's yards. But um, the other thing is we got some fennel that we have strategically taking over an area. We have some dill. The other 
So this one we would not intentionally propagate because it is noxiously invasive and we have tried getting rid of it and can't. Yeah. So there's Japanese knotweed that was in our yard to begin with. And it is a really horribly invasive. So invasive. Such a beast. And it propagates like mad. But it turns out like most of it's edible. And the shoots you can cook like rhubarb. So we have been making strawberry rhubarb compote. Yeah. I mean, if we could get that plant out of our yard, we would. But... We would. We would. We would not take it as substitution. But apparently you can also eat the leaves. So I have only barely cooked with those. I don't trust as much. And the giant evil orange nuclear looking tubers, apparently you can eat them, which we have previously dug out of the ground and thrown away. Well, we brought that to a place for them to dispose of it because yeah. it's so absolutely noxious. But yeah, we don't want it to be in our compost. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff is food, at least, that makes a lot of food. Yeah, so if you, too, are plagued by invasive Japanese knotweed, you you could at least eat some of it. You do have to look these things up. Like, knotweed and broadleaf plantain are easy to identify once you know what to look for. But you do got to look this stuff up so that you do not poison yourself to death. Yeah. Um, because like, And you should look them up before you stick them in your mouths. Because sometimes Chris has done the opposite and then convinced themselves that they were dying. The thing you don't want to mess with is anything in the mustard family, which includes like wild carrot, garlic mustard, blah, blah, blah. It's not that you don't want to eat these things. It's that you want to be very sure what you're eating. Because the other thing in that family is hemlock. That stuff is incredibly deadly and like looks like Queen Anne's lace, a.k.a. wild carrot, like a lot. So you got to be really careful. So if you do any foraging, find out what the stuff is. But if you do have a bunch of weeds growing in your yard, maybe find out what they are. They might be edible. Creeping Charlie, too. Yeah, that's... That thing took over massive swaths of our yards. But you can eat it. Yeah, you made a pesto out of that. Yeah, and a tomato sauce at one point. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. All right, that is it, I think. So that is our Topics of Interest kind of smorgasbord episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I do know we went all over the place, but yeah. Should we do another one of these? Let us know. Yeah, give us feedback. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Chris Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Chris Slimmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts, at octodon.social on twitter as at foss and crafts or you can email us podcast at fossandcrafts.org we also have a chat room join our community in hash foss and crafts at irc.libera.chat if you'd like to support the show you can donate at patreon.com forward slash foss and crafts that's it for this week until next time stay free and stay crafty thing that they kill it's the thing that they got uh socrates to drink um hemlock hemlock that's right classics <laughs>